smile. That's what it really is. <laughs> oh, they show up when she frowns too. It's weird. <laughs> All right. So Judges 13 is where we're going to start this morning. Hopefully we're going to, Judges chapter 13, hopefully we are going to make it all the way through the story of Samson this morning. Good morning, Ann. Before I forget, you are welcome. You know how my one-track mind works. (laughs) All righty, Judges 13, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week because, uh, well, that's good. And two, I don't want to leave out any of these references. The promised son to Manoah and his wife by the angel of the Lord, and then their response to offer worship to the Lord, and then the angel of the Lord's acceptance of that worship. We're not dealing with just any old angel here. This is kind of where we left off. There was a promised son that was going to deliver God's people, and the Spirit of the Lord was going to be upon him, uh, or stirring him, or clothing him, rushing upon him, all sorts of different uh, references throughout this. And it's going to be really, really interesting. In fact, Samson, as far as for references to the Spirit of God before David, is the one that receives the Spirit of God more than, either, uh, more than anyone else before the kings, including Moses, including everyone. It's really unique part of the story. Uh, Samson is a bizarre character. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with his story, you know that um, he's, uh, well, he's a strange one, but it's also not happenstance because he's also the last judge. When, when Samuel comes in, he is prophet and judge, but he's not just solely a judge. Uh, Samson is the last of the judges in the book of judges. And from then on, everything just becomes chaotic and it requires a prophet now. Um, that's an interesting transition and one that we'll talk about a little bit because after Samson, we have Samuel. Uh, Samuel is never talked about as interacting with the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God then is described as interacting with King Saul. And so then there's times where the Spirit of God is removed as a penalty for sin and then given for specific purposes and then um, different spirits from the Lord that cause him all sorts of consternation are sent. There's Saul's a very complicated individual, and then we get to David. So um, I want you to see that we're going from leader to leader with the Spirit at this point. We're going from um, uh, to the world and being created, and then the Spirit of God pulled, and then to someone like Joseph, who becomes second in command in Egypt, and then to Moses, and then to the elders of Israel, and then to judge after judge after judge after judge, and then not to the prophets, but to the kings. It's a really interesting thing, and there's something that we're going to learn about the way in which God works through different leaders, and when we come to the time of the prophets, it becomes a little bit more uh, expressive. The prophets will give what the Spirit of the Lord is giving them to say, but as far as for rushing upon, as far as for accomplishing things, uh, the Spirit of the Lord will do that in tandem with the prophets from here on out, but usually in dwelling or clothing or coming upon will be relegated to the king's. Uh, really interesting thing, and we're going to talk about that when we get there. But here we're sitting at the last of the judges. So the judges, the period of the judges is a bizarre, like 250, 350-year-long um, time in Israel's history where they were given the best shot at being a faithful culture. Best shot any culture has ever had in history. Their entire law code was God's written. Their entire design for governance was God's design. Their entire land was given to them. They didn't have to purchase. They didn't have to do anything. God would fight for them and promise and give it to them. How quick did that plan fail? This is what the role of the book of Judges shows us, is no matter the abilities, no matter the circumstances, mankind is not sufficient to maintain life on its own. This is why the Spirit of God is involved all through the story of the Judges. And the culminating strongest judge at the hardest of all times is Samson, and his birth is foretold. He's not just a random guy that the Lord uses, kind of like Othniel or Jephthah. He's, he's not even born. When God says, I'm going to promise through my spirit to bring one into the world to deliver my people. And obviously all sorts of early typologies and pictures and metaphors for Christ are all through here uh, in a man as sinful and as degenerate as Samson. So, 
Verse 21 in chapter 13 is kind of where we left off. I'll just remind you of it. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Uh, then Manoah knew that it was that he was the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. That's an important distinction. The angel of the Lord is God himself, worthy of worship, accepts worship, uh, is spoken of as God, and you'll see him in the next verse. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. That was his assessment of what they had just witnessed. But his wife said to him, here's some good wisdom, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, and now announced to us such things as these. The woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. We don't get anything else about his upbringing, anything else about his backstory other than this. His parents were promised that their son would come and deliver the people of God and work a salvation into them. Now, a word for a second on this. We're at the end of the Judges 13. A, a word on this. In the Old Testament, salvation in almost every instance is talked about as temporal and physical salvations, right? Deliverance the same. We're delivered from the hands of our enemies. God saved us from the Egyptians. That salvation, we should not be mixing up with true salvation. True salvation is something that we can't actually see with our eyes. And as far as for Israel's history, and as far as for um, what, can, what was written about, God is not primarily focused on that in the Old Testament. Not that he's not saving people. He certainly is. But that he's keeping their identities hidden, right? So we'll, we'll run into this in Elijah. Remember when he gets all despondent and going, I'm the only one left that, fought, that truly follows the Lord of all of Israel. All these people are Israelites. None of them follow the Lord. It's just me. I'm the last one. Israel is like 5 million people at this point, And he's like, I'm it. And what does the Lord say? The only time we actually have a count. What does the Lord say? I have kept for myself 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. I have kept for myself 7,000. Now, 7,000 out of about 5 million is what? Very, very, very small. That's the only time we got the actual number of New Testament term saved people in the nation of Israel. And it's a real small pittance. But not yet. What's that? But not yet. He said, I saved 7,000, but not yet. They have not yet bowed their knee. Right, right. So whether, whether the, it was temporal as well, we don't fully know. Right. But we do know that that's the only number that's left, right? Um, and whether that's an expression of eventuality or just a straight up, that's not the case, Elijah, which is probably more reality. But for all of these other things, most of these are pictures, Pictures that are taking place for our sake and for the salvation, uh, true salvation of those who would follow the Lord from the heart. God has referred to this all the way back to the beginning, that there is circumcision of the flesh, but then there's also circumcision of the heart. That circumcision of the flesh was only to depict and to show us, right? So that was always God's purpose, is to truly save people eternally. But most of the interactions we have in the Old Testament have to do with picturing that in temporal salvations, okay? So it's not like everyone who crossed the Red Sea in God's salvation of them that day went to heaven when they died. That's, that's not what it's expressing. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that there was a salvation there. Uh, there was a deliverance. Same thing with Samson here, right? Uh, Samson is being risen up. He is not a perfect man. He is not a good man. He is not a nice man. He's not a kind person. He's a horrible person. Uh, his, his view of all of these things and his approach towards women, his approach towards people, his approach even towards his parents is strange and a very unusual person to boot. Um, so let's get started into it because uh, he's our only topic for today, Samson. He has multiple statements about his involvement with the Spirit and there's stuff to be learned here. So Judges 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. 
But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all other people, uh, all our people, excuse me, that you must take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Uh, and, and here you're going to see kind of a, a difference of what's right in the Lord's eyes, what's right in my eyes type picture. But his father and mother did not know, now this is a terrifying instance, that it was from the Lord for he, that is referring to God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God had stirred up his spirit in Samson to be attracted to somebody that he shouldn't have married in order to deliver his people. Isn't that fascinating? I think it's fascinating. Because here, we, if we, if we kind of come at it the way we would do it, we would kind of just go like, well, we need somebody who's extraordinarily well-behaved, everything's, all the ducks are in order, and then salvation will be offered. But here's the reality. There are no sinless people for God to work deliverance in. And so the reality is that how God works deliverance, not only in the historical sense, in the Old Testament and so forth, but also, even in Christ, involves working in the midst of sinful people. We kind of stopped here last week by mentioning Acts chapter 4. And for any of you who did that homework and went back and read the Apostles' Prayer there, they referenced the same thing, that God used people like Herod and Pontius Pilate in their sin to bring about God's salvation. There are no perfect people for God to use to save his people, well, except Christ. And so it will interact with the world as it is, not as it should be. And Samson here is a great demonstration of that, that God uses even the sins of those leaders to bring about his purpose. His purpose was to deliver the people of Israel, and he's going to use this. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Verse 5, then Samson went down with his father and his mother at Timnah, uh, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. This is a fun story, probably one of my little favorite ones. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces, says one tears a young goat, which is always, you know, I mean, if I ever I want to explain how to tear a lion in pieces, I just tell you, well, just like I tear young goats in pieces. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and uh, talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. What in the world is happening here? And if the story stopped there, I will just put this out to you. We would be thoroughly confused. We have no idea what God is doing here. Why is the Spirit of the Lord involved with tearing a lion to shreds? The answer comes in the rest of the chapter. Yes, ma'am. Is it something, something has to die? Yes. Yes. What is the Spirit of the Lord always doing? Whenever death is there, look for life. Look for life either sustained or life as a result. Watch what happens. Verse 8, after some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating it as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast. Oh, by the way, okay, so... Let's look at this story for just a second. This does not happen in nature. Okay? If you leave a carcass out there, that's the last place bees are going to make honey. So, now, everybody knows this that's reading this. This is an agrarian society. Everyone knows that's not how it works, which means God is doing something very particular to picture something. What is he going to do with this dead lion sitting on the side of the road? He's going to bring life even from that. And that's a bizarre story. But Samson uses this event to actually judge and deliver part, in the midst of his pride, part of Israel from the Philistines. That's what the rest of this chapter is all about. He uses a riddle about this occurrence that, that nobody can really answer. Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet, right? Uh, which is very helpful that that also rhymes in English, by the way. Um, that's a, that's a really good way to translate that because the, the whole point was that there is a parallelism between out of something that eats and kills things came something that sustains life. Out of something strong in its own right came something delightful, right? 
Out of something that destroys comes life. Out of something that is powerful comes something delightful. Uh, and so he expresses this reality, and it confuses all the Philistines. Uh, the whole story is his, uh, his wedding, and, and he puts this riddle to them, and they get a week to solve it. Nobody can solve it. Why? Because who thinks of honey growing in the carcass of a lion? Samson knew that nobody had ever seen such a thing, and so he was like, I can come up with a riddle for you that will never make sense to you. Something otherworldly. And you can see here Samson using his interaction with the Lord and supernatural things happening in the midst of what he's doing to try to trick people to gain advantage of them. Yep. Yes, ma'am. By him going to the lion's carcass, though, doesn't that violate his vow? Yes, it does. Very good. He's a Nazarite vow, and he should not even be touching dead things. In fact, he does this all through this. Not only does he touch the carcass of the lion, he picks up a jawbone of a donkey, he slays people. None of this is acceptable for a Nazarite, right? Right, exactly. In three days, the people could not solve the riddle because who thinks of honey coming out of a carcass of a lion? Fourth day, they tricked his wife. You know, she, she comes in and, you know, if you love me, you'll tell me all of this stuff. If you love me, tell me all day after day after day. And Samson's like, forget it, fine. And he told her, and then she went and told them on the seventh day, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Which is a really interesting answer, by the way. Um, I don't want to get totally sidetracked because we're here for the Holy Spirit. Um, but the answer to both of those questions is Christ. Um, if we were here for Christology, we would certainly focus on that, but we're not. Um, I would invite you to look further into that, by the way. Um, and he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Um, a very crass way of talking about their usage of his wife. And so the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him yet again. And again, we have bookended issues with regards to this story regarding that the Spirit of the Lord was the one doing this. We're at the end of Judges 14. Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. What a horrible story. As you're looking at this couple of weeks worth of discussion, from the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson, or even rushing upon him, which is really unique language, rushing upon him and giving him fits of rage that carry out pictures of salvation. What are you learning from this? Before we even get into the big defeats of the Philistines. What do you learn about the Holy Spirit? What do you learn about God's plan of salvation? What stands out to you? Absolutely. God was with him. Supernatural things were going on. This is not normal behavior. Um, you do not tear a lion with your bare hands as one tears a young goat. To be perfectly honest, one doesn't tear a young goat with one's bare hands. Uh, they're pretty solid too. Yes, ma'am. But when he says it comes upon him, could it possibly be the fact that at all the time Samson didn't have these special gifts? Correct. So I think, in other words, when it came upon him, he knew that the Right. So this is a really interesting part. And one of the reasons why I, I don't usually depict Samson with huge muscles looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, because almost all the time we have him doing feats of ridiculous strength, we have the spirit of the Lord there with him. Um, now, not all the time, but not all the time that the spirit of the Lord is acting is, are we told explicitly, but enough to make extrapolation to that. It, it would make far more sense that he looked like any other guy. Because here's the thing, when, when the people were confused, they're like, tell me the secret of your strength. Well, if he's walking around looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger and, uh, and The Rock put together, nobody's wondering about the secret of his strength. It's right there in his arms. But if he's looking like me, and he's picking up the gates of the city, putting them on his shoulder, walking them up the mountain, and plopping them right down... That's not natural stuff. I don't care how strong your muscles are. You're not besting a lion with your bare hands, right? So the secret to his strength was not in what he naturally had. I actually believe that this is far more supernatural thing that occurred at instances. Um, but there was also a kind of a low simmer of, of un, 
natural strength that he carried out his day-to-day life in because he just did things that are not natural. Um, and the extreme feats of strength are usually all expressed in terms of um, in terms of the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. So yes, absolutely, a picture of that as well. Anything else stand out to you guys? I know this is not a class on Christology, but the picture of the lion being slain and something sweet and life-sustaining coming out of it should pick up our notice as we sit here. Right? What's stronger than a lion? What's sweeter than honey? What, what is something that is more life-sustaining and delightful than honey? I can't think of anything. You know, honey is the only food that doesn't actually get old. It doesn't biodegrade. We dig up honey from pots in the ancient world, and it's still perfect. It has its own antibacterials, its own everything. It's the only eternal food that we actually have. It's in the pyramids. Yep, exactly. We found jars of it in the pyramids. Thousands of years old, just sitting there, still able to be eaten, still just fine. Still tastes like the day it was made. It's kind of a remarkable thing. Why does he say, uh, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle? Uh, that is a, um, a turn of phrase from his day. Basically, if you had not taken advantage of my wife, uh, you wouldn't have solved it. You didn't do it fairly. In other words, you used manipulation to carry out your will. Uh, and so his judgment that he brings down them is to pay them. Uh, so the, the bet was over 30 changes of clothes. He was going to have to provide them 30 changes of clothes if they figured it out, and, and they were going to have to supply him with 30 changes of clothes. And they say, you know, this is gonna, that's going to bankrupt us and all these things. This is what they say to his wife. Um, you know, and he's saying, since you did wrong in carrying out the solving of my riddle by taking advantage of my wife and actually stealing her away and giving her in marriage to someone else. I will now kill 30 of you, strip their clothes off. And then that's my payment for you figuring out my riddle. It's, it's a tit for tat exchange. Um, you know, and, and this is not, this is why we don't make direct application out of stories like this to our lives. That's not a recommended way to deal with people sinning against you. But what it's expressing is that in the midst of sinful things, there is judgment that's going to take place. And so for these 30 people that were destroyed, were on, on uh, key with taking down both the judge of the Lord as well as the oppression of the people of God. And so there was no mercy shown with regards to that. And we're going to get into even more so on that. Does that explain? Okay. It's just fascinating that the, he parallel his wife with a heifer. You yeah. know what I mean? And I just looking at that and because uh, uh, there, there is a difference between a heifer and a cow. Yep. Know? So I just was curious. You would know more about that than I. What is the difference between a heifer and a cow? A heifer is one that has not freshened to have a baby. A cow has... Interesting. I'd have to look into that because that's news to me. Interesting. City boy. Yeah, well, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> See, we can learn from each other. Yeah, hey. I'd... Thank you for the explanation. Yeah, I, I, that, that would be news to me. Fantastic. And news apparently to all the commentators out there. <laughs> We're all sucking our books a little too much. <laughs> No, I cannot. Uh, I wouldn't want to conjecture that. I'd want <laughs> that. That would be a little bit far beyond my uh, familiarity, unfortunately. Yeah, I. I mean, I would have to go into detail about exactly the difference between a heifer and a cow. Make sure that that's actually the reference here. Um, yeah. So. I. I I didn't see it as anything more than you took advantage of my wife, you, you know, and, and, um, and, and if you hadn't done that evil, you wouldn't have ever won the bet. Yeah. After some days, verse five, chapter 15, after some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. I hopefully he doesn't tear this one in shreds like he does the lions, but hey, what are you going to do? Um, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, 
but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Dang, jeez. What a rough family. Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines and when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches and he turned them tail to tail. He tied their tails together and put a torch between each of their tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. It's the time of harvest. Uh, This I do know much, city boy. This I do know uh, just enough. When it's time to harvest, everything's dry. And if you run foxes around their fields with flaming torches behind them, yeah. And it set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as all the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. Uh, And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came... Okay, so hang on a second. They're like brutal. Yes. Yes. The time of the judges is the most brutal part of Israel's history. Uh, and we aren't even covering the brutal parts. Book of Judges is something else to read. I always get stuck here. Yeah, I would imagine because you you almost look at it and go, why, 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 why is this a part of Scripture, right? So if it really helps, the Book of Judges is telling us what mankind does when he's given the best shot, but his own attempts and his own efforts, right? Because the book of Judges, the people of Israel are only half a generation after Joshua. They've received the law of God, the land, everything. Best shot at the best culture that mankind can make on his own abilities, and this is what he does. Right? It's pretty rough. And this is with God delivering them over and over and over and over again. Um, And then they finally get tired of all of this. We don't even want to try this anymore. Let's just be like all the other countries in the world and have kings. Right, so Samson is going out, and is he just angry and putting three hundred foxes out to flame the fields? What's happening here? I mean, why the fields? What does that do? Yeah, you see a parallel between that and the honey that grew in the lion. There's parallels all through this. Uh, God supernaturally makes food inside of a carcass of a lion. Out of death came something sweet and life-giving. And then he turns around, and what does he do? He destroys their grain. They have no food for them, even natural food, nothing. These types of parallels are all through. So maybe it can help sustain as you read through some of these things. Look for parallels like that. Food is a big one. Water is another one, especially since they lived in a, a very arid climate. Water becomes a picture of all sorts of things. In fact, that happens here at the end of this chapter. Um, where God actually split open the rock for him as well and fed him water. Um, All of this to say, Samson is killing their hopes for the future. This is part of the judgment of God that comes on people who set themselves up against the people of God. Here we're not talking about eternal damnation necessarily. It doesn't mean that they were saved or anything like that. Those questions are not here in the text. Those questions come much more clearly later on in history. Right now, we're dealing with how is it that God deals with those who lie, cheat, steal, and kill? He takes away their future. Right? Same thing with Samson, by the way, if you know how Samson's life ends. Right? Anyone remember how his life ends from Sunday school? Yeah. At the temple. Uh, all of them, 3,000 people were on the roof of the temple of Dagon, uh, the, the god, the chief god of the Philistines. And he was tied between two pillars, and he wraps his hands around and prays to the Lord, let me kill them. Let me take avenge from my eyes, because they had blinded him uh, by stabbing his eyes out. He grabs the pillars and pulls them down, and it says that in his death, he killed more people in the Philistines than in his life. Thousands of people. Um, 
remarkable stuff like this, uh, things that no, no normal human can do. Um, the Philistines encamped in Judah, verse 9, made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to, blind, uh, to bind Samson, excuse me, to do to him as he did to us. Right? I mean, that's, that's the best thing that mankind can come up with, tit for tat. That's the, you know, in, in all of the um, uh, gang violence and so forth, and even, even criminal organizations, what has been learned over and over again in law enforcement is never to use more force than you are approached with and never to use less. It's the best thing that mankind can hope for is tit for tat. If you punch me, I punch you, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? That's the best that mankind in his natural sense can do to hold back evil. That's the job of governments, for instance. When you kill somebody, we must put you to death, right? When you, when you, when you rob somebody of their freedom by kidnapping them, we do the same to you by putting you in jail, right? So there's, there's this kind of tit for tat, and that's kind of like the best that mankind can hope for. Here, the Philistines are doing the same thing. We want to do to him as he did to us. And then, verse 11, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock that was at Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. Tit for tat, same thing. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Now, who made Samson judge over Israel? Remember his story. Who made Samson judge over Israel? God did. He promised him before he was born that he would raise him up to be a judge in Israel. The Lord's Spirit stirred him up, made him judge in Israel. End of story. Who has the ability to remove that? No, no. The people coming up and saying, you know, it'd be advantageous if we just sent you over to be killed. And Samson said to me, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came out... When he came to Lehi, now this is, this is where we're dealing not with natural things. Watch what's about to happen to this guy. The Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I love the timing here because it's absolute perfection. He is coming up to them all bound up with ropes and he's bound up with bonds. That's metal iron bonds. So he's all tied up, all strapped up, and all chained up. Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, which, by the way, means that we are in for quite the treat. And the ropes that were on his arms, this is tied all around, binding him completely, became as flax that has caught fire, uh, ashes. And the bonds, the iron bonds, melted off of his hands. Natural stuff? Not natural stuff. I've never had, I mean, I've had fevers before. I've never had a fever quite that high where I'm going to be melting iron with my hands. This is not natural stuff. And here's the reality. The people that were tying him up and the Philistines knew they were not dealing just with a man. They knew. You do not see iron dripping from somebody's hands and going, gee, I wonder, I wonder what's new about this guy. You know that you're dealing with God. And what they were saying is, I know I'm dealing with God. I do not care. We're still going to come up. And so what the first thing that Samson does is probably one of the more fantastical stories in all of the scriptures is he takes his newly melted off bonds, dripping with iron. He goes up to a carcass of a donkey, once again, breaking his Nazarite vow, pulling up the jawbone of a donkey, chasing after the Philistines and striking down a thousand of them. Also not a normal, natural thing. He takes a thousand of them and piles them in heaps. And Samson has a new riddle. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Liha. It means the hill of the jawbone. And it was called that for centuries. He was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and said, you have great, granted this great salvation. 
Again, temporal salvations. By the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came from it. When he drank, his spirit returned, he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakore. Uh, it is at Lehi to this day. That's the spring of him who called. By the way, that's what that literally means. Uh, or the spring of the calling one. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. These are the only significant stories we have from this outside of then Samson and Delilah and then his death. Um, yes, ma'am. No. No, these, these are place names from 3,200 years ago. Uh, most of them switched hands multiple times and switched names multiple times. Um, we know approximately where that is, um, but not with exactness. It's really hard to determine locations with any degree of certainty without digging something up. And if we dug up a, you know, if we dug up a, a mass burial of a thousand skulls that were cracked in with the jawbone of a donkey, I'd say now we know exactly where that is. But most of it's kind of theoretical as far as where. It's kind of hard. It's kind of like saying, you know, you know what? If you think about it, when when you go camping in the woods with a tent and a fire and all this kind of stuff, you bring all your stuff. You're there. And you, you set up a name for yourself by, you know, putting a, a, a rock in a special place, right? And then you write about that, you pack up everything and move on. What's the only sign that you were there outside of your writing? Rush. One rock and like some ashes. Well, that could happen again sometime in the next several thousand years at hundreds of places. So it becomes really difficult to pinpoint uh, unless there's like altars that are set up or commemorative stones. We see that often. Um, but here, not so much. Jericho, by the way, we found, along with his destroyed walls, because that didn't move, obviously. And that's much more significant than just a, a place where water broke open. Um, notice where this is coming from. Right? Where is this water coming from? Rock. It's coming from a rock, but where? God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi the place where he just piled up a thousand corpses. Also breaking his vow. <laughs> he breaks his Nazarite vow a thousand times. Yes, sir. Right. What a picture of it. God sustaining life, God bringing deliverance, God bringing salvation. There is nothing in this story that Samson's ingenuity carries out. Even when he comes to making his riddles, it's only in response to something bizarre that God is doing. Right? He would have never come up with a riddle about honey coming out of a lion because that just doesn't happen unless God had already done that. Everything that he does is in response to something God is already doing. This is something that we're going to see over and over and over again with regards to how the Spirit works, is that it's not dependent on somebody doing something first. God does what he does. Right Now, if you were God, set yourself in that prideful state of mind for just a second, is this how you would intend to save your people? To spend 1,500 years giving picture after picture after picture of Christ, all of them subdued pictures and dim pictures, but pictures nonetheless. I wouldn't have, right? I mean, for me, wouldn't it make sense to just send Christ to the Garden of Eden? Right? What's that? That's why we're not God. Thank you. That's right. Because how would we ever learn how terrible we are when left to our own devices? How would we ever learn? If the Holy Spirit was sent and Pentecost was like a week after Genesis 3, how would we ever know what the best that humankind can do is and how hopeless that is? We wouldn't ever seek to be saved by God on any level whatsoever. This is why in cultures like ours that are very affluent, that are very well off, that we don't even know what poor is as far as historical levels of poverty are. We've never seen it. We are forgetting God. It happens every time a culture does well for itself. We forget God. It's the same thing that happened with judges. It said, I believe it is eight different times in the book of Judges, that in that day, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, even Samson. He goes out and sees a woman from the Philistines. She's right to my eyes. That's the only standard of morality of their day. And God uses somebody in that because guess what? There was nobody else. Everyone looks at Samson and goes, man, what a terrible person. Why did God use him? He's probably the best person in Israel at that time to use. That's a pretty remarkable statement. But let me put it out there. The, the stories that surround the story of Samson are much worse. And I would encourage you to go read the rest of the book of Judges to see how horrible it gets. We're talking about Levites who own concubines that chop them up in pieces and put them on people's doorsteps. It's horrific. It's one of the most terrifying books in the Old Testament. But here, in the midst of all that dark sinfulness, the Spirit of the Lord, this little string through this horrible history, God is going to save his people. And it, it, it offends our sensibilities, and it actually insults humankind, because as humans, we like to think that if we try really hard, everything will work out well. This is the best attempt we ever had. You say, well, why is our culture any better than this? It's, it's actually not. We just have better ways of masking it. And the way that these things carry out, when Samson is, is addressing these, these temporal salvations that he's working for the people of the Lord, it's not going to be because of his great uh, sinlessness, and it's not going to be because of his great feats of accomplishment. It's going to be what God is doing with him, regardless. So Samson never asked for the Spirit of the Lord to rush on him, by the way. He didn't ask to be born. He didn't ask to be the judge of Israel. God did all of these things, right? We see him asking the Lord to do something about his situation on a couple of occasions here, giving him water in the wilderness, but all of it is to carry out what he wants, revenge, or to continue to go on. You know, these people, the, even the Philistines and Judah, they must have known that there was a significant uh, power to strengthen Samson. Because it even it took a thousand men to go get him. Yep. But then it took another three thousand men to go get him. Correct. So three thousand men for one, they must have known something. Yes. You know, they must have seen and heard some for 3,000 men to get one man. Right. They knew that possibly he wouldn't conquer that. You yep. know what I mean? But the, even the 1,000 Philistines, you know, you wouldn't think he would conquer that. Right? Right. Exactly. And that's the kind of ramping up nature of yeah. stories like this when it happens. Uh, it happens again with David, by the way, with the Spirit. Because um, I'll give you a little foreshadowing of what we're going to walk through. Because that kind of ramping up happens all over the place with the Spirit of the Lord. Right? So with Saul, he receives the Spirit of the Lord in little bursts, kind of like Samson here, because of Saul's, honestly, his great sin and his focus away from the Lord. And so the Spirit of the Lord is given to him and then intentionally removed. That happens over and over again. And Saul is very frustrated by this, but who is the little shepherd boy playing harp in Saul's court watching this happen? David. He's sitting there playing his harp for King Saul. King Saul hates this. He knows that David has the uh, spirit of the Lord. Um, there's, there's an instance where the two of them interact, where I say it's the only time where the spirit of the Lord ran into himself in the wild that we have documentation of, where the spirit of the Lord was in Saul and in David at the same moment. And they're not on the same side of things. It's a really remarkable set of things. We'll get there. And so Saul is, um, Saul is having the spirit removed from him every time he sins with regards to great failures of leadership or whatever the case may be. David, when he becomes king, remember, after his sin to Bathsheba and his killing of uh, her husband, what was it that he said in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Right? This is, this is David near the beginning of his reign, one of his first massive public failures. What had he seen in the previous king? Not only was the Holy Spirit taken from him, but so was his lineage, his future. That's what David's praying about there. Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Because we find out that David, from the moment he was, and we find this out in Retroflex, from the moment that he was anointed until the day of his death, the Spirit of the Lord never left him not once. 
And David talks about this both at his death and in one of the latest Psalms he ever wrote was Psalm 139. And he wrote and said, and he was just mesmerized that it didn't matter where I went or what happened. Still, even if I make my bed in hell, you are with me. Samson must have known that the God was with him the whole time because, I mean, he would call upon him when he needed him. Yep. Yeah. But, I mean, God wasn't there, with the, as you're saying, with the strength all the time. Correct. Right. That doesn't happen until David. David is, as I call David, as far as the Spirit is concerned, he's the only Old Testament Christian. Right? He's the only one who experienced unbroken Spirit of the Lord with him. That's why he writes the Psalms, honestly. He's very repentant. Yes, but so were a lot of other people, and they didn't experience something so unique as that. But you are correct. David was actually repentant. Saul wasn't. Um, There's a lot of people who were repentant that the Spirit of the Lord didn't stay with them. And God decided a long time ago that Jesus would come through that line. Correct. So David was pretty special. That is why David is the only one that has the Spirit of the Lord from the day he was a shepherd boy all the way to his death. He actually writes a poem about that in, in the book of Samuel uh, that we're going to spend some time with because it's it's kind of mesmerizing to see. And he, he just expresses it. He's like, the word of the Lord was just on my lips. It was just there. And he's just astounded at this reality, right? Uh, nobody else has that. I mean, it's a thousand years before Christ is born. Nobody else has that, right? Nobody else has that experience. Yes, ma'am. But David was also very humble. Correct. I mean, whereas... Saul expressed his, you know, his kingly powers, whereas David remained humble. Correct, correct, and 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 persecuted, and all sorts of other things. And and there's so many parallels between David and Jesus. For instance, Jesus makes these exact parallel parallels. Um, David, when he is on the run, writes uh, the Psalm of the Innocent Sufferer, Psalm 22. And he starts it off with words that I think you'll find familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? They chase after me. Like he addresses all these things like, I am suffering for something I didn't do. Jesus quotes that when he's on the cross, pointing people to Psalm 22. You think you're killing a sinner. You are persecuting an innocent sufferer, right? Challenging stuff. Yes, ma'am. Right? Right. He had respect for Saul because he was the Lord's anointed, not because he had uh, not because of any other thing. And then Saul Saul is repentant at that moment, saying, You know, you've done far better than I have done. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of remarkable. And um, but it, what's what's fascinating is that due to what David had done, all of his descendants maintained the thrones of Israel even in all of their unrepentantness, because God made promises through David that he was going to bring through. One of, the, one of the crazy things that we see about this is not only will Jesus come as a descendant of David through his father's line, but also through his mother's. We see his father's line in the genealogy in the book of Matthew. We see his mother's line in the genealogy in the book of Luke. Both of them separately go back to David. Both of them. That the promise was that there is no way, and so this is the thing. Now, Jesus wasn't Joseph's son in anything other than the legal sense. But what Jesus is being depicted as both to Matthew is that in the legal sense, he is a son of David, and in the natural sense, he's the son of David, and in the supernatural sense, son of God. It's, it's, this, it's this whole picture of, of how God has been working, and there's no way this happens unless God is doing it. This is not a natural progenity, right? There's no, there's, how, many, how many monarchies are in the world today that were in the world a thousand years ago? I believe there's one. I think it's Thailand. If every country rises and falls. It always happens. The, you know, governments switch. You know, migrations happen. All sorts of stuff throughout history. But... This is what God continues says and what the Spirit of the Lord will remind his people during the time of the prophets is that no matter all these things that come and go, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Why? Because it's the Spirit that brings the carried sound. It's the wind on which the words ride. Um, Remarkable stuff. And so when John comes in and says, yeah, the word of God himself became flesh, 
and dwelt with us. And how did that happen? But the spirit of the Lord brought him to bear. Um, Samson being a picture of all this shows that God is going to save his people in the midst of sinful darkness. He's not going to interact with the world as it ought to be. He's going to interact with the world as it is. It's one of the great things about the Old Testament is that it's not, it's not expressing how things ought to have been. It's interacting with them as they are. Real people, real sinners, and God working real salvation. It's a really remarkable thing um, that the Spirit of the Lord is mentioned all through here. We're going to come next time to the story of Saul in 1 Samuel. And we're going to deal with, with uh, how the Spirit of the Lord very uniquely interacts with Saul and then, the, uh, and then a little tiny boy named David at the time, um, who is by all mentions under 12 years old when the Spirit of the Lord is anointed and he receives the Spirit of the Lord and carries on in the most unique life in the Old Testament. And so we're going to spend probably two Sundays working on David because he's just so central to it all. Any thoughts or closing ideas here? Yes, ma'am. Do you think um, the story of Hercules is kind of based off Samson? Not based off Samson, no. Um, But the ancient Greeks were aware of the Old Testament writings, so there would be probably some cross-inspiration from that. But there's been stories of real strong people before. But even notice with Hercules, they notice that this isn't just a man. There's no way just a man can do that. Hercules was a crossbreed between a god and a man, right? Or a god and a woman, right? And, and it brought about something unnatural and supernatural and strength that, you know, strength that followed in that uh, tone. Um, uh, not directly, but certainly in the sphere of it, in the, in, the, uh, in the larger sphere of it, yeah. I wouldn't see any issue with that. Yes, sir. In almost 80 years of sermons and Bible lessons, I have never had a lesson on Samson. Really? Wow. Why would that be? Um, like I said, the book of Judges is one of the harder books to sit in. Uh, if we read just a couple more chapters, a lot of people start blushing in church. Um, I, I, I think that has a lot to do with, we've received so much in the New Testament, right? And, and so it rightly garners the vast majority of our attention because therein we see the culmination of all these things. I personally believe you don't really appreciate the New Testament until you appreciate that that wasn't a new idea. That was something that God had been designing for thousands of years. So um, not everyone shares that. Not everyone knows that. And and not everyone likes that. Uh, some people would like, it, it's much easier to wrap up a Bible study with a bow in the New Testament. It really is. You know, I, I, you can go to any passage and you know, it, it gives you the introduction, it gives you the context, and it gives you the conclusion. I mean, it's really much easier to preach the New Testament than it is the Old. The Old Testament, to preach it rightly, one of the hardest things to do. Because you can very easily get tripped up in, in, in references to salvation and deliverance and then turn it into New Testament concepts that they didn't even know about. Um, so I, I'd probably say... For the same reason that you're seeing me preach through Philippians in the book of John, um, I intended to preach through the book of Exodus, but that's something for another day. Preaching through the book of Exodus is very difficult, but I argue one of the most rewarding studies that there is in Scripture because it's the first place we see God enacting salvation in a unique spiritual and supernatural sense. Um, that gives us all the foundation stones for the gospel. If you're going to focus on just one, focus on the gospel in the New Testament. Okay? And I think that's probably more an answer to your question why this is much harder work. Um, I think it's much, it pays off though. Because I'll tell you, if, if you guys stick through this study, by the time we come to the day of Pentecost, day of Pentecost is going to mean so much to you. And the reality of what the Spirit is doing in your life, you will be able to see what He's doing. Right? Because right now, if you talk about what the Spirit's doing in someone's life, it's almost like this mystical thing, right? Maybe he's leading me to this, or uh, I open my Bible and you know, close my hand and put my finger on it. Oh, that's what God's saying to me. The Spirit of the Lord is doing things in every Christian's life. And most of the time, we, it, we are oblivious to it. And my, my purpose here is not so that you understand it, just to know it. It's so that we become thankful for what God truly is doing in our lives. Because it is varied, and it is complicated, and it's awesome. So, yes, wait. Uh, 
one, one of the things is if you're looking at the Bible without first being a Christian and looking at the Old Testament, yeah. it is not really uh, something that you want to get a hold of. Mm-mm. So the New Testament, of course, is after Christ. Right. And then the Spirit indwells you. Right. Why does the Spirit indwell you? Well, let's go back here and read the fourth story. Right. See what it is. Right. And a lot of people get stuck into the the New Testament. Right. I'm not saying bad, good, or otherwise, but a lot of people don't lead back. Right. Right. And 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 we and we run into the issue of uh, we're going to be interacting with this on on uh, in in the sermon this morning. We run into the issue of thinking that what the Spirit is doing in my life is for me. That was the huge problem of the church in Corinth. All their spiritual gifts were just about them. And wh- what God says there is, first of all, if, if, if what the Spirit is doing in your life is about you, then it's worthless. That, that should speak volumes to us. Well, that's, that's where, when you read back into the Old Testament, the, the Spirit of the Lord is there. Yep. Nobody recognizes it. You know, right. for, for the most part. Not, not on the New Testament level, you're right. Yes, in the New Testament level, you read when Christ went to the cross. Right. And, you know, that's where 95% of the scholars will tell you, in order, if you're looking to get, you know, looking to find out about faith, mm-hmm. go to the, the Gospels. You right. Know, go to the New Testament. This is where you need to start. Well, and the it's, Holy Spirit wasn't in us in the Old Testament. That was a gift from Christ. Correct. At the day of Pentecost. Yeah, so it's different. And and here's the thing, too. Here's something that I think a lot of Christians make mistakes on. Um, and, and this goes exactly what you're saying. The day of Pentecost is after the Gospels. So as we interact with the Spirit of the Lord in the Gospels, we're still in the Old Testament. All right? So the economy of the Holy Spirit inside the Gospels, he's still interacting in the Old Testament. So is Jesus. The New Testament church age does not start until after the ascension of Christ at the day of Pentecost. And so when you read the Gospels, ever wonder why when Jesus is talking to them, his sermons sound so much like just the Old Testament? It's because it is. The Gospels are the transition point between Old and New, but they are not the New Testament, strictly speaking, yet. The church age starts in Acts chapter 2, right? And this is why in Acts chapter 1, we'll get there. It, I'm, I'm so looking forward to this. In Acts chapter 1, what do we see the disciples doing? How did they make a decision? They didn't do what seemed best to them and to the Holy Spirit, like we see at the end of Acts. They cast lots in Acts chapter 1 to decide who to replace Judas. Now, a lot of people, because they don't understand what the Spirit has been doing, say that was sinful of them to do. No, it wasn't. They were still in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord came the next day, and they never did that again. Because there was a huge transition that took place. Something that Jesus had foretold that would have to come. But before that, God was working through very natural means. Now, if we don't know that, we read Acts chapter 1, and we go, well, it's in the New Testament. I can cast lots to make decisions no. Christians have the Spirit of the Lord. We have something much better. Something that the prophets of old, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, longed for and longed to see, but didn't come until our day. Right? So when, when we're dealing with all that, it's really important to make these distinctions. And I, I, I find that most of our errors come in not understanding what the Spirit of the Lord has been doing. Yes, sir. Plus, that's been a generational journey yeah. coming up through. That's that's all they knew. Yep. So that so how could they even think about going to something that hasn't even been there yet? Right. So all of that learning has just been passed down, and passed down, passed well, down. Well, and in the Old Testament economy, God did work right. through casting of lots. Mm-hmm. Book of Proverbs talk about it. Uh, the man casts the lot into the lap, but the Lord determines its outcome. Right. Right, you, you have the same thing, the Urim and the Thummim in the priest's garments. Those were lots that would be cast to determine the will of the Lord. Don't do that today. The Spirit of the Lord has replaced almost all of this. Uh, and so uh, don't, don't be opening your Bible and blindly pointing at something and saying, that's what the Lord has for me today. All right? The Lord uses every instance. 
but that's not the Lord speaking to you. The Lord working in you and through you will oftentimes be in ways that you're not aware of unless you're aware of what is it that the Spirit is interested in and what is he doing. Uh, and then I promise you, you will be able to see where he's at work. Um, he brings life out of things that aren't life. And boy, does that teach us something about our pride. Um, all right. We will be in First Samuel next week. Let me pray as we close because it's already after 10. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that it continually challenges, molds, and shapes us. Uh, that oftentimes it's just like bread. We don't understand all the vitamins and minerals and calories and everything. But we understand that in eating it, there is nutrition that you work in us. Same thing with your word, Father. We do not always understand what it is you're working on, but we know your promise to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight will not bear or wax old. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the fellowship of the saints. We pray that it grow in love as it builds up to the body of Christ in your son's name. Amen. Sure thing. Thank you.